This is episode 160 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Engineering Human Cardiac Muscle with Dr. Casey Ronaldson-Bouchard. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. If you're interested in staying even more up to date with all the latest stem cell podcast news, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Casey Ronaldson Bouchard from Columbia University on the podcast to talk about her research on engineering human cardiac muscle using induced pluripotent stem cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about Muscle Cell News, one of Stem Cell's free weekly scientific newsletters. Muscle Cell News summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in muscle cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Monday. So save time and keep current with Muscle Cell News. You can subscribe for free at musclecellnews.com. Speaking of muscle cell news, that's the first paper I'm going to talk about today is about smooth muscle cells, and in particular, iPS-derived vascular smooth muscle cells. The title of the paper is called Tissue Engineered Vascular Graphs with, Engine with Advanced Mechanical Strength from Human iPSCs. It's coming from Yale in the lab of Yibing Kuang. First author is G.C. Lo. So we know that vascular smooth muscle cells can be derived in large numbers from human iPSCs. You know, it's one of many different muscle cell types that we can differentiate from iPSCs. And you can make some tissue-engineered vascular graphs. Kind of the application here is, you know, there are a lot of different diseases out there that require you to uh, have a graft of, you know, vasculature that's going to bypass, say, like a blocked artery or restore vascular function in some way. You know, so like the famous example is the coronary artery bypass graft, right, which is, you know, something that you get after you have arterial blockage in your heart. But, you know, there's other examples of this as well when it comes to, like, severe injuries uh, due to disease or car accidents. So there's a lot of interest in generating these custom tissue-engineered vascular grafts. It's kind of another way uh, to restore vascular function after an event like that. The problem is, though, you know, current IPS-derived tissue-engineered vascular grafts aren't exactly mechanically perfect. So, you know, they they need to be pretty good when it comes to actually integrating with the endogenous vasculature. And that's kind of preventing them from taking that next step translationally. So these folks at Yale were able to generate IPS-derived uh, tissue-engineered vascular grafts that actually had mechanical strength that were comparable to native blood vessels that are actually used in these like arterial bypass grafts that I was talking about. And the key here is they utilize some biodegradable scaffolds and actually kind of did a kind of like a workout routine on these um, these tissue engineered scaffolds. And in fact, this is something that, you know, our, our guest today, uh, Dr. Casey Ronaldson-Bouchard, she actually did something comparable with her, her nature paper that came out recently, where you actually subject these tissues to an increasing amount of, of stress. And this is actually able to enhance their overall maturity. And so they're able to culture these cells. They first had to optimize the right conditions to actually grow these vascular grafts and played around with a bunch of different culture conditions. Uh, so they culture them under what they called effective incremental radial distension. So again, you know, fancy words for just saying, you know, just stretching these guys, you know, out repeatedly. And they're able to get these IPS-derived tissue-engineered vascular grafts with like in, advanced mechanical strength, better than kind of what anybody's been able to do before. And it's a relatively short paper in cell stem cell, uh, only got four figures, I believe it's just a report. So the paper is just reporting on the optimal conditions for growing these graphs, talking about maturing the, the graphs with this you know, force output, with this continual pulsatile flow in this bioreactor. And the last thing, of course, they wanted to demonstrate that in vivo, these graphs are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. So they 
characterize them and actually introduce them into an in vivo model of, um, of vascular dysfunction. And we're able to show that, you know, they did a pretty good job, you know, comparable to what like, you know, uh, a native arterial graft would do. So I think in the end, it's a, it's a short paper, but I think this is something that's pretty important for, uh, for an alternative source for vascular grafts for, you know, say coronary artery bypass. And this is, you know, of course, when it comes to the heart and when it comes to vascular injuries, this is something that you have to be able to find. You have to be able to find an adequate source of these vascular replacement tissues. I mean, when it comes to people having heart attacks, when it comes to people having these different vascular injuries, I think any time that you can find a, like a replacement vascular uh, system is, is a really good thing. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's, this is a proof of concept. It's early stage, um, you know, but again, another cool application of IPS-derived tissue engineering. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot with Dr. Todd McDevitt. Today, we're going to talk about this with uh, Casey Ronaldson-Bouchard. So tissue engineering is taking IPSC-derived cells to the next level when it comes to their maturation. And, you know, transplantation for these vascular grafts is the next step. Yeah, this is definitely a nod to uh, our guests here with the bioengineering and the application in the heart. I think what's interesting to me is, is, is you know, I, I'm very invested in vascular biology and in the pluripotent stem cell system. And I think what people have, have classically, I, I always talk about this, you know, everyone talks about, and my mentor has always said this, that the, everyone appreciates the vascular system as a passive conduit. You know, mm -hmm. it's just tubing. Um, but I think this story appreciates the fact that the vessel, that tube, is actually a really complex kind of an organ, I would say, and tissue. Um, and it's complex. It has a lot of components. The idea that we're just going to put endothelial cell tubes in there and form vessels for vasculoplasty or bypass is harebrained. And people knew that already. But I think here now we're getting to the next level where we're getting these you know, grafts that are composed of multiple cell types, specifically the parasitic smooth muscle cells that support it. Right. I think the next thing, and this would be my question for them, and I'm sure they would acknowledge that the that even the system that they're trying to approximate here, this kind of uh, coronary bypass using a like saphenous vein is classically used. Even that is kind of a kind of a, a bastardization of or I would say a, um, you know, a corruption of, of the physiological mechanism. You know, you have a vein that you're putting in an arterial space and the, all the pressures that's put on that vein ultimately results in neo-intima formation and growth of the parasitic region in these vessels and ultimately stenosis. It doesn't work out well. And this would be my question to them, is that I, we appreciate that we need a lot of cells in the, these grafted vessels and these engineered constructs, but also the, the specific types of cells in there are going to be unique whether or not whether it's you know arterial or venous and the start point there is going to affect their therapeutic viability so i would be really interested to see how these these vessels are these grafts perform long term and if they behave like these venous grafts like the saphenous vein in a bypass or if even better they retain like the arterial quality and are able to maintain patency in the long term so i would love to have an answer to that question. I'm sure it's just a matter of time now. Yeah, I mean, this is actually something they talked about in kind of their future directions. Like these vascular graphs that they generated are completely devoid of, you know, IPS-derived endothelial cells. Um, so I think that's kind of the next step that they want to take here and kind of what you're talking about, right? Not only are we able to make endothelial cells, and this is something that, like, obviously you have a lot of expertise on, right? We can make ECs, but we can... Uh, we want to make the right ECs, right? We want to make the right, you know, arterial endothelial cells. Um, so I think there's still some optimization of differentiation protocols in combination with like these tissue engineering approaches that we have to that we have to take into consideration. Yeah, but it's amazing. Like 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 you both of us said, this is a nod to to the bioengineer on the show, but also underscores how quickly the progress is in bioengineering. But it's not all prefab, Arun. You know, there's uh, also the whole idea of single cell suspensions. You can in inject single cell suspensions, and classically, this is done with bone marrow that can reconstitute the entire system. Um, so that's the other side of the coin here, and I want to talk about this really because it's a bit of a callback 
to a story that you did in the roundup a couple shows ago from Matt, Matt Porteous, who showed that they could address cystic fibrosis and modify airway stem cells from the lung, modify them, correct them, and grow them on scaffolds. But the question at the end of that story I know I had, I was like, why don't they put them back in? Well, probably because it's hard to get airway stem cells in a single cell suspension or on a scaffold, get them to integrate. Well, boy, was I wrong. Arun, for 10 years they've been doing this. You can get uh, a, a suspension of lung progenitor cells and you can inject them and they will contribute. And this was shown a while back, like I said, by many groups, but I'm going to talk in particular about a, a story related to this that followed from this from Yair Reisner at the Wiseman Institute. So, you know, we're talking about the lung here because respiratory disease worldwide causes more than 9 million deaths a year. I didn't know that, but that's a lot. And lung transplantation, of course, that's a curative option, but it's hard to find donors. We know this. Um, so what Reisner and other groups have shown that that you can take fetal lung progenitors um, in a single cell suspension as long as you vacate the niche, okay? Just like bone marrow, if you ablate the, the actual lung niche, the stem cell niche in the lungs, then they become receptive to a transplant of lung progenitors that are in suspension. It's sort, sort of like bone marrow transplantation, that you, you harvest these cells. In this case, they took them from the fetus, and then they infuse them intravenously following chemo and total body irradiation. So it's a pretty intense treatment, but that vacates the niche and it causes these airway stem cells to colonize and you get these lung patches in the recipient lung. And that results in a pronounced improvement in the lung function. After that, they also showed they could do that using adult lungs, right? Because fetal tissue is not very readily available. So they said, hey, can we do this with adult lung cells? Lo and behold, of course they could. And while the frequency of these lung, these patch-forming cells, the putative progenitors in the adult lung, is about threefold lower than you see in the fetal tissue because the lung tissue is so much more because it's adult. There's a lot more cells you can get out of there, right? So it's practical there too, but there's a problem in that, you know, lung transplantation from a, a donor, even closely matched, you, you have to go on the lifelong immune suppression, right? So, you know, in these studies they were doing in syngenetic mice or they were using human tissue. They did this with humans, so it works with human, but they put it into immune deficient recipient mice, of course, right? So how do we get around the conventional immune suppression? Um, well, that's this newest study, which was in cell reports, uh, was focused on inducing immune tolerance. Uh, and what they did is they demonstrated a durable tolerance to mismatch, not only, you know, not perfect match, but a mismatched lung progenitor. The way they did this, without any immune suppression, by the way, the way they did this is that they co-transplanted with hematopoietic progenitor cells from the same donor as the, the lung progenitor cells, okay? And this was initially done in proof of concept with fetal cells that you took the, uh, the fetal tissue and it had both hematopoietic and non-hematopoietic cells within the lung, just, you know, lock stock, it, you it transplanted the whole fetal uh, tissue derivative in there. But they showed that they could also do this with adult lung cells, and, and it worked even better if they took and co-transplanted bone marrow-derived hematopoietic progenitors at the same time. So, Arun, for me, the big takeaway, it's a technical feat, but the big takeaway for me on this is, hey, one, this it seems like we're going within the kind of paradigm of bone marrow transplantation that's been well-established. And if we could do that for the lung, that would address a lot of disease conditions, acquired and genetic. And to the latter point, with the genetic disease, I wonder if Matt Portius isn't already correcting cells and, and grafting them into the lung using this type of approach. And with that being the case, with this proof of principle being there, I think uh, we can expect to see some cures uh, of these patients in, in, you know, not, in not long, because you really only need to rescue a, a proportion of the lung function in order for these patients to have a much improved quality of life. So I think it's a cell report study, so not huge in terms of, you know, the, 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 the impact is huge, but maybe the visibility of the story is not. So I'd like to raise that visibility a little bit, Arun.
Yeah, I'm sure Matt Porteous is working on something like this. You know, I remember we were talking about that paper a couple of weeks ago where they're able to generate those cystic fibrosis, um, you know, lung cells or cells from people who have cystic fibrosis and then correct them and then generate them, put them on a scaffold and then the paper just cut off right there, <laughs> right? So, you know, you know it's coming. Like, you know, the the whole transplantation side of things is is definitely coming. It's cool to see other folks kind of taking another approach, a multi-lineage approach to addressing a similar concern. Kind of on that topic of multi-lineage, like I think this is this is becoming something that's more and more popular, I think. You know, the idea of integrating multiple cell types into not only for like in vitro modeling, because that way you can have kind of a more realistic representation of whatever tissue that you're trying to study, but also for, you know, in vivo transplantation. Like I remember a couple months ago, we had a paper that I think it was in nature from Sanjay Sinha's lab in, in the UK, where they're kind of addressing that concern of cardiac transplantation when it comes to iPSCs. And like, you know, we have folks like Chuck Murray who have been able to introduce the iPS derived cardiac myocytes into like hearts after a myocardial infarction and like usually when you do it alone just the cardiomyocytes they don't do a great job when it comes to actually functionally integrating with the the host myocardium but remember you know dr sinha's lab they're able to introduce not only the cardiomyocytes but the epicardial cells too and they showed that that was actually the key to getting these cells to to integrate more long term so i think it's you know multi-lineage approaches are becoming much much more popular and it makes sense right like you know, most organs in the body are comprised of multiple cell types. So ideally, you would want to introduce those different cell types. And of course, they have a very powerful paracrine effect. These cells are always continuously interacting with each other to uh, to perform whatever function the tissue needs to have. So I think it's a it's a powerful approach. For sure, man. And 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 I think I mean you just have to look at a tissue to see that it's comprised of all these cells. And and the idea that that you could put in one of those cells and it, it would work, is uh, it seems pretty naive. And you know it takes you back to the one gold standard again. I love to talk about it, but the gold standard of hematopoietic bone marrow cell transplantation. It's a single cell, right? A single cell can reconstitute, but it's only that system where it works. Why? Because the niche is intact. And the single mm -hmm. cell can go there and it can colonize. So even in that system, it's not really a single cell in, in a vacuum, you know, or an embryo. It's not a single cell that divides in a vacuum. You need to implant. So there's really not a system, unless we're talking about budding yeast, where you're just a solo operator. So it's nice to see that people are coming around and injecting multiple cell types to try and get tissues because that's what they're made of. Mm-hmm. Shifting gears a little bit, we're going to talk about something that actually just came out from from Harvard. I think this came out January twenty second, which like as the time of, at the time of this recording was like yesterday. Uh, it's a uh, it's a paper that's getting a lot of press. Um, it's a Nature paper, and it's you know solving a, a biological puzzle that a lot of us have to to go through. You know, this is talking about hair graying. So when you get stressed out. You know, and there's a lot of examples of this when you get stressed out, either through writing a ton of grants or, you know, all the kids are running around, you know, your hair starts to gray out a little bit. And I'm starting to see this myself. I don't think this is something that you'll ever have to deal with, Daylon, because you're blessed with beautiful hair genetics. I'm just looking at, through, at you through the screen right now. Go on. <laughs> I'm not going to go on. <laughs> but... So basically hair graying, that's what we're talking about here, and hair graying in response to stress. So these folks at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute were able to figure out exactly how this hair graying process plays out. So stress is actually activating nerves that are part of the fight or flight response, which in turn causes permanent damage to the pigment generating stem cells and the hair follicles. And, you know, like, as I mentioned, we all have like, you know, a story to tell when it comes to the hair graying in response to stress. But they had I, I thought this was a really beautiful approach because they kind of narrowed down their um, the target, you know, based on like a very rigid screening approach. They wanted to figure out why is this actually happening? And so they looked at a bunch of different possibilities. Right. 
So, so they first had to narrow down which body system was actually responsible for connecting stress to hair color. So they first hypothesized that the stress was caused by uh, the stress causes like an immune attack or something on you know the pigment producing stem cells. But in their mouse model, they showed that in mice that were actually lacking immune cells still showed the hair graying. So next they turned to the hormone cortisol, which of course you know is, is released under stress. But again, another dead end. So they eliminated these different possibilities, and ultimately they figured out that it was the sympathetic nervous system, which is, you know, responsible for the, the body's fight-or-flight response, that's causing this graying response. And so in the hair follicle, there are certain stem cells that act as a reservoir of different, like, pigment-producing cells, these melanocytes, right? And so when the hair regenerates, some of these stem cells are converting into the pigment-producing cells. But... When there's a lot of stress, so they stressed out these mice and, you know, very interesting approaches. Um, so after they stressed out these mice, they found that the norepinephrine from the sympathetic nerves was actually causing the, the stem cells to activate. So proliferate like crazy and differentiate too. So you're losing that pool of stem cells in these stressed out mice, right? And so ultimately that reservoir is gone after a certain point when, you know, the, the mice are stressed out enough. And once the reservoir is gone, you're not able to differentiate uh, into any more pigment producing cells. And that's why you have the, the hair graying that occurs as a result. So important thing to consider here, they're, they're talking about acute stress. Uh, they're not really talking about the aging effect. So that's actually one thing that they want to uh, figure out next is, you know, is this a similar effect in the aging process as well? Aging is stressful too. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm going through that right now. But, you know, I think it's, it's a really, uh, it's a neat paper because they really beautifully answered a fundamental question. But don't get me wrong. There's a lot of translational application here, right? This is a big time industry. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of cosmetic giant companies that are, you know, hoping to, to, to jump on this, right? I think actually I saw that the Harvard Tech Licensing and Office of Technology Development immediately filed a provisional patent to kind of protect some of these findings. So you know there's a, there's a translational approach to this down the road. Hair loss and hair graying, you know, a lot of folks are going through it and it's, uh, it's refreshing to see that people are really giving this a, a closer look. Yeah, Arun, when I think of the, the constellation of unmet needs in our, the developed world, uh, you know, that are devastating our society and our culture, hair graying really jumps to the top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you know, it's about vanity and it's about uh, the, the cosmetics industry. And I guess that makes it a nature paper. But I think, like you said, there's a fundamental question. I'm not even trying to hate because it's one of those questions like, it's a nature paper. Why? Because, yeah, maybe because there's a big financial element there, the vanity or cosmetic element of it. But the reality is, is people have been wondering how this works forever and been trying to figure out from a million different angles. And so when you have an angle that's novel and it makes sense, yeah, it's a nature paper because they answered it. So kudos to you. May you live the rest of your days with a shining, beautiful mane. Yeah, I mean, it's a nature paper, I think, for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, I think their approach was very, very, you know, in-depth and very thorough. You know, just the fact they're able to narrow everything down ultimately to the, the fact that it was, you know, the sympathetic uh, nervous system that's actually causing this, uh, you know, eliminating other possibilities was, I think, uh, a phenomenal approach. One question uh, so, I have. One question. If you're, yeah. if you're this lab, is there a lab that it's like, this is our, this is our research focus is hair graying? Um, or is it like you also throw in a little like alopecia or something in there that's more like clinical patient driven and not like, you know, commercially driven? Do you think this lab has as folk focus outside of this this field? I don't know. I can see it in both ways. Right. So this is the lab of uh, Yachia Shu over at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. I mean, for one, if this is your exclusive focus, then this is like you are the expert, right? And you don't have to worry about com 
competition maybe as much, right? I don't know how many, uh, again, I'm not familiar with this particular field, so I don't know how many other folks are working on hair graying, but you know, like at least on the IPS cardiomyces, I feel like everybody is, is mm -hmm. doing something related to IPSCs, right? So, you know, it's a competitive field. And in that way, if you can establish yourself as the world's expert, um, in this topic, then, you know, maybe you don't have to worry about people like kind of, you know, looking at you, you know, looking behind your back or, you know, kind of seeing who else is out there and working on what you do. So I think it's, uh, you can see it both ways. I see, uh, probably eyelashes and or wrinkles are going to be next on the horizon for one of these big labs, but moving on, I got something a little bit more clinical and it's a, it's a, it's a nod again to the biomedical engineer on the show. And it's also a bit of a callback to last episode where we talked about spinal cord uh, repair and injury. But let me get back uh, to the beginning here. Um, this is a story from Casey Mara, who is also a bioengineer from the University of Pittsburgh, also named Casey. So, I mean, we're the multiplicity of references to our guest in this roundup story are myriad. Um, but let's get back to it. My apologies. We're talking about not spinal cord injury here. We're talking about is peripheral nerve injury. And because peripheral nerve injuries account for, it's not a huge number, but it's significant. Two to 5% of people that are entering level one trauma facilities in the United States. And here's a big number, 150 billion in healthcare costs annually from peripheral nerve disease or injuries. Um, so here's the difference with peripheral nerve injuries. The peripheral nerves can regenerate at a rate of about a millimeter a day. And if you get small gaps, they can be kind of juxtaposed, reapproximated, and they'll repair, they'll knit back together. But if you have a big gap, like 20 to 30 millimeters, um, you can't really directly link those, right? Even if you go in there surgically, you try to pull them together, you're going to create too much tension on the rest of the nerve, right? So the current standard of care for these peripheral nerve injuries is autografting. It's what you do. You take a donor sensory nerve, autograft, you take it typically from the calf. It's called these sural nerves um, in the calf. And you transplant a bundle of these sensory nerves into the, the lesion site. Um, what's the problem? Well, you got to have an additional surgery to get that peripheral nerve out of the, the calf. Um, uh, also, at the site, at the donor site, you get complications like neuroma, or you can get permanent loss of sensation, which, I mean, cry me a river if you can't ever feel anything in a calf. But that's significant. I want to feel what's going on in my calf, for goodness sake. Um, but also, yeah, it might not even work. That donor nerve might not be sufficient. Um, and the autographs, they're not ideal for motor or mixed nerve injuries because the sensory nerve there, specifically in the calf, it differs in morphology. So you're going to have like a mismatch in the diameter nerves that's going to affect the ability to reanastomose and restore conductivity, right? So there's a lot of interest in developing alternative methods. And one obvious extension is just create a conduit, right? A scaffold. Put something there so that the existing nerves on the proximal distal end, they can kind of creep along that conduit and then join up, right? But if the gap's too big, so if it exceeds 30 centimeters... Uh, 30 millimeters, three centimeters, the growth cones from that proximal and distal end, that's too far away for the signals to kind of diffuse over there and be picked up, and then they, they get lost. They don't go towards each other. They just go kind of everywhere, right? So this is where Casey, the bioengineer, came in uh, to investigate a biodegradable conduit as a scaffold, but this is where it got interesting. It was embedded with uh, these microparticles that provide sustained release of GDNF. Sustained relief for more than 50 days, okay? And they tested this in a five centimeter nerve defect, okay? So this is way beyond the size that's typically, you know, referred for autograft. Uh, and what they found is that relative to using autograft, they found a, a similar functional recovery in both autograft and the GDNF sustained release uh, conduit. They were both better than just empty conduit, okay? So it showed that the GDNF was actually relevant. Um, and what's more is that the nerve conduction velocity a year after the surgery, it was better in these sustained release GDNF conduits, better than autograft. 
So it seems like this is a this is a it confers a greater benefit in the long term. And when they look histologically, they see that that group, the GDNF sustained release group, has a greater uh, statistically significantly greater average area that's occupied by Schwann cells, and the Schwann cells are the myelin-producing cells. So relevant there too. So. What are we talking about here? I think this is a, a, a interesting study that shows, and granted, it's peripheral nerve disease, but I'll, I'll again call back to that previous study where they were looking at spinal cord injury, and the big takeaway there was that they could use this same factor, GDNF, in order to condition the niche, to make it more constructive, to eliminate the off-target cell, uh, cell differentiation and, and other effects of that hostile niche and the inflammatory niche of the newly injured spinal cord. So maybe, I'm thinking maybe, this same approach using GDNF, maybe not in a conduit, but maybe in a similar mechanism or a similar modality, might be able to improve uh, the engraftment of exogenous cells or may even be able to scaffold the regrowth of um, some nerves within the spinal cord. So I think it's a, it's a nice story that takes bioengineering. And I always love these types of bioengineering stories, Arun, because I get so nervous about cells. You know, you've been in the game long enough to recognize that as soon as you start talking about cells, the FDA and the approval, it's an issue. It's a live product. Whereas you're putting in some engineered scaffold to recruit the endogenous cellular machinery seems to be a lot more practical and approvable and safe. So I love the story of science translational medicine from our guest's namesake, Casey Mara at UPittsburgh. Yeah, you know, this is kind of going back to the first paper that we had talked about, the the vascular grafts. And this is pretty similar, right? And, you know, another approach to using bioengineering to restore function and nerve function in this regard. Uh, this isn't exactly a stem cell paper, but, you know, it's a tissue engineering paper and, again, has a lot of applications. The immediate application I can see is, um, you know, for example, in different um, combat situations, you can lose uh, nerve function because of, you know, various traumatic injuries. Um, that's another application even for the vascular grafts that I was talking about in the first paper too, right? So, you know, you talked about the spinal cord. I don't know. I think it's going to be a little tricky. Um, spinal cord is a lot more complicated than, you know, peripheral nerve, right? There are a ton of ton of nerves in the spinal cord. And I think this is part of the reason why spinal cord repair has been so difficult. You're, you know, it's, it's such a dense tissue and you have to really restore a lot of nerve function there. And that's not, that's nothing to say about like the myelination as well, right? You have to restore the oligodendrocyte function when it comes to the spinal cord. So you have to restore that myelin sheath. So I think it's going to be a little, I'm a little bit more pessimistic when it comes to this application for the, for the spinal cord, because the, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of nerves in the spinal cord. So that's something you have to think about. Absolutely agree, Arun. And I think the real, I think the, the, what I mean by app applying this approach to the spinal cord, I agree that it's really not practical. But I think what, what's important as a takeaway here is this sustained release. I think that the, the idea that you can put something into the body and then walk away and, and, and leave it to, you know, to, to recruit the endogenous cellular whatever um, is now over has been not debunked, but I think the important control there where they put the conduit alone versus the GDNF really underscores the value of not only the GDNF, but the sustained release. So when I say that we're going to use these conduits in spinal cord, I don't mean an exact mirror of this technology. But what I mean is that, that it's the convergence of understanding the system. Okay. So in that case, understanding that, that, that hostile inflammatory niche, what it's doing, it's perverting the normal differentiation process of these progenitors. Like you said, you got to make all these different cell types to, to recapitulate the complexity and repair that spinal cord. So corrupting that or adulterating that differentiation process in the inflammatory niche, it's an issue. And then when they kind of modulate that with GDNF, it improves it. So I think that what we're talking about here is not necessarily the conduit with the GDNF, but a material combined with a growth factor that is sustained in creating a, a kind of a, a beneficial environment uh, to modulate the milieu, to make it more amenable 
to repair. But I agree, Arun, it's going to be a long time before we get people getting up out of their wheelchairs, and it's going to be baby steps until then. We got to talk with uh, Casey about that, as she seems to be the expert. She can start another couple companies, maybe focused on the spinal cord. But before we get to that, I got a little message from Stem Cell Tech. Do you work with human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes? Use stem cells, stem diff, cardiomyocyte, media, and supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and cryopreserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells, and the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening. You can learn more about this at www.stemcell.com slash stemdiff-cardio. And with that, I'm going to let Arun introduce our guest for this episode. All right, everybody. This week on the Stem Cell Podcast, we have with us Dr. Casey Ronaldson-Bouchard from Columbia University. She's a research scientist in the Laboratory for Stem Cell and Tissue Engineering and also a co-founder of Terra Biosystems. She got her PhD from Columbia in Biomedical Engineering, and she works on developing integrated organ-on-a-chip studies for in vitro human toxicity and disease modeling towards the goal of developing personalized therapeutic options for patients in a more efficient, safe, and efficacious manner. So Casey, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't we get right into it? So I guess in your own words, why don't you elaborate a little bit on what you're doing these days? So we're tissue engineers. We're basically taking stem cells and supporting cells and putting them in their right niche to make that organ that we're trying to represent. So I focused a lot on cardiac tissue and then integrating these cardiac tissues with other organs. So how can we kind of make a human in a dish and plug and play all the different organs you might need, depending on the question you're trying to answer? Casey, I'm not accustomed to being the oldest by a decade on this show, but here I am with two rising stars in the stem cell field, both of whom happen to focus on the heart. And the heart, you know, disease of the heart, specifically, arguably the greatest case that was made for regenerative medicine at the inception of, you know, pluripotent stem cells as an idea clinically. Um, and that was when I was in training decades ago. Uh, but that was really about regeneration, repair, you know, a toolkit make new cells, make new tissues. Are we still on track to achieve that end? Or do you think the focus has shifted more towards like modeling and other types of applications? I think it's more just a pivot. And so the overall goal of tissue engineering is still grow organs in the lab, you know, replace instead of waiting for a transplant, I could just grow you an organ in the lab and transplant it into you. And so putting that into reality, we're really good at making very small organs. And a lot of that's, you know, due to nutrients not getting where they need to go because we don't, we're not great at vascularizing. We can make arteries, we can make capillaries, but we can't really span, you know, everything in between. And so we can make really small little functional units of each tissue. And so we kind of pivoted and said, you know, what can we do with that now? All this money has been invested into tissue engineering. What can we get out of it? And we can do a lot with disease modeling, you know, take pat their patient's own cells make their organs and test drugs, um, find new mechanisms, do biology in a human without um, clinical trials, things like that. Do you think, though, that's like a pivot away from the whole Chuck Murray regenerative approach? I mean, I know there's still the ideas out there. Maybe it's a cell slurry or something. But the, like, is, is, do you think people are moving away from the idea of using cells directly to repair? Or is that a pivot away? Or is it a pivot that's just inclusive to, to really diversify all the, all the ways in which we're applying pluripotent stem cells to the heart? It's kind of both. Um, so you're pivoting away because it's going to take a, a while before injecting cells and having them in graft is a thing. You know, maybe we inject exosomes or the things cells secrete um, and not really cells per se. But uh, the techniques you'll develop for scaling up cells, manufacturing, you know, having organs on a shelf for organ on a dish studies versus transplantation studies, they'll all converge in the future. So I, I think they'll, they're both moving forward. And then, you know, if cell therapy really takes on, the techniques will be there, you know, manufacturing, scale up, things like that, quality control, which is really important. So as long as things are moving 
forward and patients are at the forefront. I don't see a harm. So on the topic of cardiac tissue engineering, not too long ago, you had a groundbreaking nature study looking at the advanced maturation of engineered heart tissues made from IPS cardiomyocytes. And of course, you know, maturation is a big goal in the IPS cardiomyocyte field, as, as we both know, since, you know, we're both in this field, right? Uh, and of course, as somebody who also works on IPS cardiomyocytes, I was blown away by just how well aligned and functionally mature your cardiac tissues were in that study. I remember looking at the, the EM, the electron microscopy images in, in awe when your paper came out. So you, uh, you published that approach um, also in a Nature Protocols paper, and it seems relatively simple where you kind of subject these tissues to increasing electromechanical stimulation over the course of a few weeks. And the way I see it is you're kind of giving the muscles a kind of a workout, mm -hmm. right? And they're, they're getting stronger and stronger over time. So talk a little bit about, you know, that the papers and are we finally there when it comes to IPS cardiomyocyte maturation? Do you think it's just a matter of making these cells hit the gym to get stronger? Or do you think there are still some elements missing in the, the IPS cardiomyocyte maturation story? So in the maturation story, I think we still have a ways to go. Um, I don't think there's not a place for immature cells, but now you have uh, a variety of maturity levels to look at. So, you know, if your drug hits a certain ion channel, it's sometimes nice to have immature cells that overexpress that, that current. Um, but if you're looking at structural drugs or things that are affecting contractility, you want a more mature cell. So you always like fit for purpose. Do you need all this maturation? It does take time, monies, reagents, things like that. But we wanted a very mature phenotype. So we were working on the organs on a chip grant that the NIH and NCAT started from the beginning. And it's a really accelerated grant. So basically every month they check in with you and they make sure you're doing what you said you would do. And so it's kind of aggressive. And, and so we were moving really fast and just kind of throwing things at the wall, getting everything to work. And so I wanted to try different workout regimens. So I like high intensity interval training, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> or like wind sprint, things like that. You know, you don't have to work out and run so many miles, but just like hard and fast, go for it. You kind of get the most money for your buck, per se. Mm -hmm. And so trying things like that. And that was, you know, Melissa Redisic's group from University of Toronto had done things like that. Her and Gordano were the first to electrically stimulate cells. So we were really big on we wanted the right hydrogel mechanical forces and to electrically stimulating cells. Um, and so one, another key turning point was making the tissues just was hard. They would, we'd have big EBs and, and our dissociation, you know, wouldn't always lead to great formation of tissues. And so I was trying just to optimize how we form the tissues. And so I started using earlier cells. So normally you mm -hmm. do the differentiation, they're beating, and then you wait until they're beating, you know, really, really strongly. And then you would dissociate them ideally want single cells and make them into a tissue. Um, and so we were finding getting single cell populations from these older cells just was harsh. It was a harsh digestion. And so right when they started beating, we decided that we would dissociate them and make tissues. And they just looked, they formed a tissue much more nicely. They, they were beautiful. And then we're applying the same electrical stimulation regimen and they just responded right away and really were, you know, ready for that workout. So it was timing, you know, having all the right electromechanical cues and then, you know, going for it every day. So don't let the tissues rest because they adapt mm. a lot. Yeah, there's so many inputs there that that are a part of the becoming, the maturation. It's like this becoming, right? And uh, as an engineer, you know, that's this, this whole stem cell field is trying to understand that becoming a organized tissue or rudiments or enlage that will then make something useful, right? And as an engineer, I think probably you love to build, right? You like mm -hmm. to build systems, but as a bioengineer, uh, you must also appreciate that biological systems, particularly in the shifting molecular landscape of embryogenesis, are kind of like unfathomably complex. Um, and so is the, the, the challenge of constructing tissues and organs in vitro, right? Because you have to recapitulate this or kind of recapitulate, kind of, you know, you just get it going and it takes care of itself in some ways. But um, it's also tough that you have to reconcile all these inputs. You're young enough to see a future that I can't glimpse through the cataracts of my faded hopes <laughs> and failed hypotheses. So you tell me, Casey, do you see a limit on the scale of tissue engineering 
that we can achieve? Is there, is there, you know, a, a size of tissue or a scale of tissue that we're not going to be able to achieve? I, I don't know about that. I think there's always going to be something to model a disease to look at patient specific differences. Um, size wise, until we have better techniques just to form tissues, I think we're very limited. Um, and why get so big per se, mm -hmm. if you don't need it, if you're not trying to replace a whole organ, you don't, you're just wasting materials. Cells, they're cheap, but they're also expensive um, when you look into mass producing it. So I, I, th I think there's plenty of things to model. So I mean, even with the maturity, hopeful. we can, you we see the well. future and you're, you know, I guess the, the question behind the question there is that the deeper you get into something and the higher you achieve, you see all the, the problems. And I think from your bioengineering perspective, you've become more and more educated on how complex the system is. But you, you think that we're, we're making progress, that we're getting our arms around it? Or do you think the more we learn, it's kind of like these genomic data sets, is that you get all this information, you realize that you really can't make sense of it. You can only get a, a glancing blow, kind of. Yeah, I mean, especially with single-cell RNA-seq, you just realize how many different cell types there are and how much you don't know. And so you're kind of just throwing targets at a wall and hoping you mm. get near a bullseye and you keep doing that until you find something that hits. Mm. But the, the more we know, you, the more you can get to work. I guess that's the, the bioengineering approach. It's part, you know, logic-driven, but part just pragmatic, just throwing stuff at the wall and then picking yeah. out what, what sticks, right? So shifting gears a little bit, Casey, you've also been extremely involved in different initiatives geared towards supporting women in science and engineering fields. And you also happen to be in an incredible lab for, for just that as mm -hmm. well. Um, you, For example, you're the president of the Graduate Society of Women Engineers and were also named an emerging global leader by womensphere.org. And I mean, I think we still have a ways to go before women are truly equally represented at the training and leadership levels in academia. So I think the work that you're doing is exceptionally important in terms of like making that equality a reality. So could you talk about your involvement with some of these initiatives and, you know, in general, what can we do better as allies and as a scientific community as a whole to improve the representation of women in STEM fields? You know, growing up, I don't think I ever thought about being a bioengineer at all. I never saw it. So I went to undergrad and I wanted to become a doctor and I was choosing doctor or lawyer. Those are like the only two fields I thought existed. And it wasn't until much later when I discovered bioengineering. And so I always try to do initiatives that would reach out to younger people just to show them what's out there. You know, if you expose them younger, maybe they'll go down a path um, that they, they like a bit more. You know, science is fun. People think you're just like in this lab, in a lab code, and it's super boring. They don't realize there's music on all the time, you know, tons of dynamic <laughs> conversation going on. It's you're, you're playing, you're tinkering with, you know, toys and building things. You know, it's it's fun. And so getting that out there. And then when it comes to women, um, just being empathetic and supportive. So I've had great women mentors. Um, mm -hmm. So I've never really had to. You know, I have two children. So I've had mentors who have children. So I was never worried about saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant. What do I do? That it was never an issue. I would bring my first child to lab all the time and baby wear. And we draw things on the whiteboard and plan our next mm -hmm. bioreactor. Uh, my, our lab, I don't know if you've started to notice, but we have a trend. Our postdocs come, you know, they get pregnant. We've got three babies um, in lab just in the past couple months. And so it's, it's just about you know, supporting others and, and no matter what, what that'll be, you know, men, women, younger people coming up, just being empathetic. And instead of thinking it was a tough road for me, so I'm going to make it tough for you. You know, why don't you just let them get through it faster and see what they can do kind of unleash their potential. Yeah. I got to just throw in a little anecdote. Cause when I, when I had young kids, my first kid in particular, he was so young and he loved the lab. I would bring him into the lab and we'd dress him up and all the stuff and you know, the gowns and stuff and the clean room stuff. And then I would take all these pictures. And then my wife saw in the background, all like the biohazard and the <laughs> sharps containers and stuff. <laughs> and she put the kibosh on my little boy coming to the lab ever again. So that was nice while it lasted, but it is safe in the lab guys. And it is fun. Um, in case I have to say, you're a great spokesperson for that aspect of the lab. You're great you know, scientist, but engineer, but you're also a great science communicator. I'll refer the listening audience to a, a really great TED talk that you gave a while back where you used your uncle Billy, who is afflicted with cancer to illustrate 
the value of uh, stem cells for personalized medicine. Unfortunately, uh, Bailey has since succumbed to the disease, but we're not really going to talk about that. I just want to talk about, you know, that science communication, giving a TED talk. It's, it's really high up there, I think, in the list of many scientists' life ambitions. So congrats on that. Must have been amazing. But um, what's your take on the importance of science communication on specifically scientists communicating their science to the lay public. What's the idea there? Are we trying to get them on board? Are we selling it to them or do we owe it to them? Do we owe the explanations because they already paid with their taxes or are we just psyched to, to you know, talk about it because we, we think it's cool or we want everyone to be impressed by our godlike understanding of biology. What, what do you think is the relevance and importance of science communication, both for scientists and for the public? I think all of it. Um, you know, for scientists, you want to do something impactful and you want to help others. And so communicating your science also trains you to see where can I have the most impact? How would people actually use this? What's the biggest disease? And it's, you know, you write in, in your significant statements, heart disease is the leading cause, blah, blah, blah. But what are you actually doing to make a meaningful impact? And when you tell people what you're doing, you have to put it in those terms. And so then you start to think, you know, how can I quantify what my value might be to somebody very quickly and in a way that makes sense? And then for the public, there's sometimes a distrust of science or, you know, all this money is spent on research, especially pharma companies. You know, they think you're, they're hiding diseases or, or cures, this magic vaccine. And, and so you always want to communicate what you're doing. And it gives you accountability, too. Um, so the science will trust you more. They're more open. I enroll in clinical trials more. If we don't have patients willing to enroll in clinical trials, how can we, you know, test new drugs? And so everybody being informed, just, you know, kind of open access everything. Mm. You know, you want people to understand what's going on. Uh, you want feedback, you know, what's meaningful. What do people really want? Where can I make a difference? And, you know, kind of push all that. Mm. So as our listeners have probably figured out by now, it seems like you wear a lot of different hats in your in your life and your professional life. So you're not only an accomplished scientific communicator, research scientist, and bioengineer at Columbia, you're, you know, of course, just down the road from day long, but also a co-founder of Terra Biosystems, which is a growing biotech startup that's focused on commercializing and applying the cardiac tissue platforms that you've developed towards drug screening. And I think this is something that a lot of academics in our generation are doing, kind of keeping a foot in both the academic and industrial side of things. But but on a daily basis, how do you balance your academic and industrial commitments? Are you constantly running back and forth from the startup to the lab or are things more kind of rigidly separated? So what's a day in the life of Dr. Casey Ronaldson Bouchard like? So it's changed a lot over the years. When Tara was just getting developed, you know, I was the only person in our lab when we opened at Harlem Biospace. And then we moved to Alexandria and I was running back and forth. So I would spend at least one day of my week there. Um, but a lot of times science kind of moves slowly. So you, you know, you do an experiment, then you have to wait six hours. So during that time, I'd hop on the train, go all the way down, you know, walk across town. So it seems that you were both in the same city, Columbia and Terra, it's at Alexandria, a life science mm. incubator actually right next to Daylon. Mm. Um, but it takes an hour to get to. So I'd basically go there, do something, go back to Columbia and go back and forth a lot. Um, and that process was really nice to see where you could have translation, you know, learning what customers really wanted. Because in the lab, you're developing a technology and you think, you know, I, I've got it. This is what they want. And then you go to put it in customers' hands and they're like, I want to see this, this and this. And I don't even want to use it that way. I want to use it this way. And so it's fun to go between the two. Um, you know, once you start a company and get it, it kind of grows itself. So we have a powerhouse CEO and she's really grown it. We have amazing research scientists there. And so now they're kind of on their own and just executing. You know, they have a great technology. Just how do you get it to that next level and translate it to industry? Because industry and academia are different workhorses. We think well, the academic version of high throughput and, the, and reproducibility and the industry version they're very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like you're living in two or three or four worlds, Casey, and and it's not unprecedented. I mean, we've talked to, to people on this show <clears throat> that have multiple companies and they're running these huge labs, etc. But they're all ancient. They're all geezers. And you're this young, young lady and having a major impact 
very early in your career, having reached some very impressive milestones, a TEDx talk, your scientific founder of a company, you have a big nature paper. Oh, and, and then you got your PhD. Um, <laughs> so you got your whole career ahead of you as a point there. And given this precocious entry in all these worlds you're living in, what's the path ahead look like for you? Do you think it's going to be like a more conventional academic route or is there like a new model that you're going to invent some new after you win the Nobel Prize in a couple of weeks? I mean, <laughs> what's what's going to be the next thing for you? I get that question a lot. And, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? And I, I mean, I am grown up, so I should know it by now, but I, I really don't. And I kind of try to stay true to where's my passion and what do I want to do? So I want to provide researchers and the community with tools to further personalized medicine. So how do we uh, decipher human biology without do experimenting in humans? And so kind of give people awesome tools to do awesome biology. And I, I still haven't really discovered what that looks like. Do I do that in academia? There's great flexibility, but you're kind of in, in this really hyper-competitive rat race all the time. Do I do it in industry? And then you don't necessarily have that flexibility and you're driven by money. So I, I always go back and forth between the two. And, and so I'm hopeful that no matter what I decide to do, um, I can go back and forth between the two. I kind of want to stay in the startup world now and then do academia when I'm older. And that's really unheard of. Um, but you know, you, the model's kind of changing. You see young kids coming in now and from day one, when they do their PhD, they, they want to do a startup. And mm. in the, back in the day, it was, you do a PhD to become a, a professor. And so the model's kind of changing. Uh, schools are doing a lot more, uh, the, where the business school and the engineering school and the, you know, the communications effort are all combined and, and giving training in every aspect. You see much more, um, physician scientists. So I think everything's emerging. And as long as you're true to the goals you want to accomplish, that it, it might take many shapes. Hopefully, we'll see. Hmm. All right. So this next question is coming from me as a biased non-New Yorker stem cell biologist to you, New Yorker stem cell biologist. So when we think of the big biotech hubs in the US, you know, San Francisco and Boston usually jump to mind first, whereas I suppose New York is mo known more as like the finance capital of the country, but between Cornell, NYU, Columbia, the Rockefeller, and a whole New York City biotech scene, there's a ton of talent in the Big Apple, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that combined with funding from sources such as like the New York Stem Cell Foundation has really boosted prospects for, for biomedical research in New York. So, so Casey, like Daylon, you've been in New York for a while now. And since you've found tremendous success in the big city, both on the academic and biotech side of things, could you tell us non-big city folks why you think New York City biomedical research scene is right up there with the best? It's, it's definitely getting there. Um, so we have the great research institutions. We generate a lot of patents. And then you see that IP just leaves. It leaves the city. It's not getting developed here. And so we're training all these scientists. We're generating all these IP. And then they go elsewhere. You know, they either want to live in warmer climate, climate and they go to the West Coast or they go up to Boston. And so we've really tried, or New York as a whole, have tried to keep that talent. And so the first issue was there's no space. Space here is expensive. So what do we do? So, you know, taxpayer dollars went to building these life science communities and incubator hubs and, and training for scientists. And so that's all here. And so we we have training, we have space, we have talent, and there's a lot of IP. So what's next? And so I think that we're, you know, academia is kind of changing here. So you have a lot of purists um, in the academic institutions here where they almost see it as a win to not have a company. Whereas if you're in Boston, everybody's got a couple companies, you know, you throw a pebble and you're hitting their startup. And so that's trickled down to here and people are, you know, wearing both hats a lot more. Um, but also we don't have a ton of failed startups. And so having that whole ecosystem where if I want to hire somebody to come join my startup, that's a big risk. You know, they either want to go to industry or, you know, go somewhere where this person's had a startup before, um, so convincing people to stay here and take that risk is, is huge. But when it's people who are in the startup scene and their are one startup failed, you can re you recycle them. So you see people who have done all these companies with the same core team. You know, they build a company, they develop it, they get acquired, they go on to the next idea and they kind of do that over and over again. And so we're just at the beginning of developing that. And so we've got all the resources. We're a big financial hub. And so the other thing that you need 
for life science industries is money. And so mm-hmm. I, I think we have all the components and, you know, people are sleeping on New York, but we're going to be on the map in, for biotech really soon. Don't sleep on New York. Nope, uh, never. Are you a born New Yorker like me? I'm born New Yorker, but oh, I wasn't raised here. You can't sleep on us New Yorkers. And now you forgot about the pizza, okay? <laughs> There's also the pizza. That's a big deal for the scientists. They love pizza. All those <laughs> they definitely want to move all the way here and live in the cold for the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Without pizza, there'd be no lab meetings. Um, on a uh, more personal note, uh, we're going to get to some kind of like sideline questions that are science related, but not exactly science focused. Um First question, Casey, is tell us a, a non-science book or not not so science book that you're reading or that you've read recently that is awesome and you'd recommend to our listening audience. So I tend not to read books too much because I'm a little too busy reading papers, unfortunately. I have an uncle who always sends me books and they just kind of sit on my bookshelf. Um, but it, it is a goal. Uh, but the most recent book I've been reading is the... Um, Entrepreneur's Guide to Biotech Startup. So it's still kind of sciencey, <laughs> but uh, always having that framework for if you're developing a technology, how do, might it translate? Is there value? Can you actually make a profit from this? Is there a customer? And so I think for young scientists, especially, or you know anybody thinking about translating, you know, read these books. Your school probably has a business school, and they'll sponsor these things. I did ICOR recently, which is um, the NSF and NIH's program to. You know, get out of building, see if your technology could translate, talk to customers, see if they would actually use this. Um, so I always tend to read, you know, kind of entrepreneurship focused books. I may have to uh, revise the question for the entrepreneurs out there that it can't be science or business related <laughs> in the future. But uh, that's actually a good answer. So I'm not going to revise anything because the young scientists out there, maybe you should, you know, broaden your horizons out there, go make some money on your on your ideas. Second question, I or make money though, translate value. <laughs> All right, yes, I don't want to make it too uh, ruthless, uh, mercenary. Go out there and get your ideas into people, mm-hmm. into their brains, into their bodies, saving lives. Next, we're going to run with a series of blanks. The first one is the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is single cell sequencing. Oh, yeah. You're so right mm. about that. I, I know. Mean, it's just so much. <laughs> We're so just going to realize how much we don't know. Yes. I'm also just fatiguing. I don't know, I'm looking at these plots and now I'm just realizing that, you know, there's just know too so much. much. Yeah, we, and we don't know so much, but then you can get to you're work. You're seeing dots in your sleep, right? I'm yeah. seeing dot, dots dot in my sleep. Uh, mm-hmm. Second, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without mentorship. Um, you know, having good mentors, Working as a team, having mentors that listen, um, you know, really just having people around you that support you. Yeah, that's huge. And having good mentorship, I'm sure you will pay it forward. And that's really the virtuous cycle. You have a good mentor, you are a good mentor. So uh, I'm, I'm psyched okay. for your future mentees. Thank you. Next, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless probably throwing things away. I'm kind of a hoarder, um, specifically in lab. And so I, I never want to throw anything away. I just, I keep everything. People always make fun of me. I have a lot of space in our lab just dedicated to, you know, things I've either bought because I wanted to try these random things and then you keep them or somebody was leaving lab and I kept all their stuff. And so I, you'll have names of every researcher that's been through our lab. You know, I, I have one or two things of theirs or more, but I never throw anything away. People make fun of it, but when they are like, oh, I really wish I could do X, I'm mm. like, oh, I, if it's like I have extra long zip ties, like the longest zip ties you've ever seen, I have them in bulk <laughs> because somebody else had them here, then, you know, it saves their experiment. You never know. Yeah, I'm like the opposite and my wife hates me for it because I have like a policy in my house that if the kids, if it's, if it's a toy and they like it, they won't leave it on the floor. So if it's on the floor, I put it in the trash. It's like kind of how I clean up. I clean up by throwing things away. So, I mean, it's not a good policy. But that said, how often have your miracle zip ties saved experiments? And I would like to plot that against the ratio of how much <laughs> anguish it's caused your lab mates. Because that's the conversation I'm constantly having with my wife. I'll tell you that much. So yeah, I don't hoard at home. At home, you know, you're done with this toy, give it away. You know, or my family wants to buy lots of presents 
but we live in New York. Like we don't have room. My mom bought my son a huge roller coaster. Like I live in an apartment in New York. Where is this going to go? <laughs> so I don't hoard at home, only in lab. I guess it's not my space. Yeah, so. exactly. You've got too much lab space, clearly. <laughs> All right. Last but not least, if the lab were to catch fire and you had a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it would be your cell phone. <laughs> so I, some people have lab notebooks. I also have a lab notebook, but I tend to like print out a to-do list and then write all on the piece of paper and take a picture. And mm-hmm. whenever we do experiments, I'm videoing it. Mm-hmm. And so I really want like Google glasses or an Alexa hub that can just record what we're doing in lab. Or if we have a good idea, hey, record this. So we kind of need like virtual lab notebooks that are listening and recording us mm-hmm. all the time. So we can say, hey, flag this. Or, you know, I wrote the wrong thing here. Remember this. Yes, some might call that scientific big brother, but it would be a boon. I'd like that though. So yeah, I mean, some people would like it. You know who wouldn't like it is a dishonest scientist. So I'm all for it. We should get scientific big brother, not because we need some kind of overseer, but think how much easier it would make your life if you could go back in time mm-hmm. virtually and just say, what did I do in this Exactly. Scenario? What did we talk about there? I and mean, what's better than a video? Or you have so good ideas better. and yeah. we use sterile gloves in the hood a lot. So we can't, I can't pull my hands out to write it down or else I'm re-putting on you know, the whole, the whole process starts over. So we, we say it and we always want, you know, Alexa to record, but we can't put it on Alexa in our lab because it's in the hospital. So IT won't let us. Really? Is yeah. That a rule? We can't connect that. it to the, we just can't connect to the internet. Well, we got to get something in place, some kind of over overseer in a good way. And your PI yeah, can drop in on you. Well, yeah. What are you actually doing in there? <laughs> Think about that. I mean, wow, the postdocs that's, that's are <laughs> A little dangerous. <laughs> yes. Don't know definitely. about that one. <laughs> definitely an imbalance. Um, but hey, you know, we're looking forward to more entrepreneurship from you. We're looking forward to more, you know, heart engineering, bioengineering of all sorts. And uh, we're going to talk to you sometime in the near future. I'm thinking, Casey, thank you so much for joining us for this chat. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you guys for having me. It's been awesome. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode, number 160, with Casey Ronaldson Bouchard, our bioengineer extraordinaire. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the notes for this show, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You should also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com to give us your feedback or better yet, to suggest some guests. Suggest yourself if you like. I'm sure you're very interesting. We would love to talk to you. Until then, you're going to have to wait a couple weeks to the next episode, but it's going to be a good one. Stay tuned, guys. 